Hello and welcome to this New Year's edition of A Cry for Kelp, where I have the great pleasure of interviewing arguably the biggest mover and shaker in the seaweed industry today, Mr. Bren Smith from Greenwave. If you don't know Bren, and I'm intrigued why you'd be listening to a seaweed podcast if you haven't, he's the commercial fisherman turned ocean farmer whose TED talk on vertical ocean farming first opened my eyes to the potential of seaweed and led me here today recording this, the 12th episode of A Seaweed Podcast. Greenwave's 10-year goal is to provide training, tools and support to a baseline of 10,000 regenerative ocean farmers in order to catalyse the planting of a million acres and yield meaningful economic and climate impacts. He's also the author of Eat Like a Fish, a manifesto for restorative ocean farming and part autobiography, which is not only inspiring but also an absolute joy to read. He was kind enough to give us some time in between farming duties where we discussed the future of the industry and what needs to happen for that future to be bright, covering issues such as subsidies, cooperation, policy and tech. Such a charismatic and knowledgeable man, I really cannot wait for you to hear what he had to say. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, Bren. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you so, so much for sharing your time with us today, Bren. It's uh, it's a huge honour for me to have you on the podcast. And obviously, I've got so many questions for you. Um, but I think everybody knows your bio, or certainly most of the people that I speak to in my audience know your bio. So I don't really want to talk about that. I want to go straight into where we are with the the seaweed industry right now i know you have some current you have some concerns but i also want to sort of get your perspective on you know what what are we doing right at the moment first yeah so um yeah wonderful wonderful to be on and uh, i'm here to disappoint right i mean you know at the end of the day i'm just a i'm just a, the regular farmer but um uh, life takes weird twists and turns you know but um so uh i mean it's just a amazing to see after the i've been farming the same patch of ocean for 20 years and doing kelp for over a, a decade and you know what was there were a couple of us just completely petri dish experimental uh kind of being laughed off the docks you know and told that uh, nothing would, would ever work and then and now just like the number of people in the industry um that that what's fascinating now is the number of people from other industries that are bringing skills in you know that like and that's been really really great because um uh uh the the amount of talent i think uh uh in the space now is just uh uh just it's just uh um uh, really really refreshing like we've seen a lot of people come in from the infrastructure space like you know which is just so so important a lot of people coming in from like seed uh uh, like land-based seed industry and um uh things like that so uh you know and as far as so what's going right? I mean, I think the community of passion is amazing, right? You know, we're like we had eight thousand people on our farmer waiting list, right, to sign up to farm. Now a lot of those people are just excited and don't want to farm, but it shows that I think there's a we're at a stage now where we, t- we need to get serious and turn that community of passion into a real community of practice. Yeah, indeed, and to that end, we've got to be honest. There are some. Uh, issues with the industry the way it is currently what do you think those what are the big ones that that worry you that keep you up at night about them on the macro level for the industry yeah i think um you know there's a history of aquaculture in the u.s which are there are great ideas coming out of sort of bench scale out of laboratories and from entrepreneurs that work at the garden level 
out in the, you know, in the water. And then people, and then a huge amount of capital rushes in because it's game changing. Look at the ocean. We can, you know, feed the planet, do all this sort of stuff. And then the the gardens stumble and the promises of scale don't happen. And then capital rushes out and it's like, oh, this is too risky a space, right? So yeah. I think it's very important we don't allow that to happen. See, we didn't, we are seeing, and this isn't for me, there's like a lot of us that have just been in this industry a long time, whether it's scientists or entrepreneurs or policy people are seeing just a lot of speculative behavior, you know, whether it's around blue carbon or automated floating platforms, or actually some of the companies out there, global companies are acting more like real estate companies, just getting as many leases as possible and not growing kelp. And I think, you know, it's not like they're bad folks. Um, it, it, it's that the the sort of venture capital model doesn't allow for honesty yeah. and doesn't allow for sort of revealing those granular level of mis- uh, mistakes. So you always have to show like, I'm going to, you know, scale 10x. We did this in one state. Now we're going to go national. Now we're going to go global in order to unlock that next round, right? And um, it's really important that we move away from speculative behavior and to sort of get fascinated by what's not working, right? And that's actually the funnest part. Like, let's dig into the problems um, and uh, uh, really come together to solve those. Um, But the speculative behavior, a lot of it's from land lovers, Quite honestly, like folks that don't spend much time in the ocean um, and think of it, you know, they're designing uh, from the desk and the ocean is just a really odd business partner, right? It's like it's, it makes you pretty humble. It's a fickle beast. And, um, but, uh, but don't you feel that, 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 um, that the investment world is changing? I mean, I remember uh, recently being told about Larry Fink from BlackRock saying ESG is the tech investing of today. And I, so I can't help but feel we are going in the right direction and it's going to be less about shareholder value and more about stakeholder value. And therefore, we're going to get a, the, the better longer term capital going into the industry. Or you think we, you know, we're, we're still, you know, maybe a decade off from the, that that uh, tipping point of that, of that level of capital, that type of capital. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about climate change is it's just going to create crisis after crisis and everybody's going to rethink their models and it's going to open up these opportunities for like, thinking of different ways than if you don't, it closes back up, right? Yeah. And that's going to continue to happen. So like the crisis politics, I think is, you know, it's going to be painful and awful, but it it does, it does, it's a good um, ingredient for, for change. Um, I think, um, uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I think for the ESG stuff, folks are going to have to be like, "Oh, we can't make as much money as we did." Like, there it can't be yeah. an equal thing where you where you actually destroy the planet, create inequality, gut communities, stuff like that, and make huge returns. Like solving these problems, we're going to lose money on solving these problems, right? Yeah. Or make way less money, and I think that discussion has to happen. So it's more than just like I care about inequality, I care about climate change, and it's a priority in my organization, as opposed to like. I'm willing to lose money or like re- like really um, uh, have way, way lower returns because this is so important. I think maybe, you know, we'll see if we're on that uh, uh, that journey or not. I do think I see a lot of I mean, I think a lot of what I, you know, sort of fuzzy sharks, folks who come out of uh, the investment community made a lot of money and now on journeys of redemption, sort of like I am as a commercial, you know, it's like a pillager of the ocean, right? Um, that um, uh, they are in climate denial 
right? Because when, you know, they'll get excited, they'll, they'll um, uh, 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 want to invest in something. And then on the last end of the deal, right? That last like couple feet, when the accountants take over and the quants and they're crunching all the numbers that they then pull out. And that's a form of climate, climate denial, right? Like the yeah. numbers don't work the same. That's brutal. That must be absolutely brutal for anybody going through that to to feel like they're close because everybody's running on 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 fumes anyway most of the time, right? There no, there isn't. You know, you've got mouths to feed and all that, and you feel like you're close. I can't imagine that. That must be a, you know just terribly disheartening. But let's let's imagine for a second, if you will, that in you know in the next couple of years, there that that smart capital, that smart moral capital, does exist, and people are willing to take time and lose money on it. What would we? What do we need to do to create an industry that's ready to receive that capital? So, what are the, what are the fundamental pillars that we need to to get right? I believe there's something about subsidising it. I think it's just, it's not just going to be you know it's going to be grants rather than investment. Uh, what's what's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, like I think I think what's um, going to happen is that it's going to be a more interesting, you know, I don't know all these terms, but people teach me them like capital stack, which it's, you know, there are places where you can make money and good returns. There are other places that require subsidies. There are places that uh, require government money. And you just think about that as a whole stack. And then it gets deployed in a, in sort of a very strategic way. So for example, hatcheries are way too expensive to yeah. run. Like it's not a profitable business, but, and if you made it profitable, you'd have to charge farmers so much that they can't afford it. Right. So hatcheries really need to be subsidized at this point as you know, the efficiencies get built in. Um, farming is an extremely high risk activity. I mean, it is a hard place to grow food is underwater, right? There's no question about it. Yeah. And the farmers are accepting that risk. And so in order to build up supply so the market can grow, need to subsidize farmers so they're selling, but also there's a sort of safety net there so they keep growing and scaling. But if you yeah. just think of the farm as as a place that needs to survive purely on sales, I don't think that's a realistic view of what it's what what it's uh, going to take. Another example would be stabilization. Like one of the challenges in the industry is we're all um, selling kelp as farmers. And instead, we need to sell some sort of value-added commodity like a kelp slurry, like a stabilized product that we can be selling year round, right? Yeah. And um, that'll take some government investment to figure out that um, uh, 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 that sort of farmer infrastructure. So um, I think we're going to get there. It's just we got to unlock this sort of ideology between like government money, philanthropic money, private money. We need them all. And um, uh, none of them should have preference. They all need to combine together to solve any climate solution, any climate challenge, I think. So give me give us this perspective over in the states right now in terms of it, with with that with that subsidies hat on is is there I know that there's a culture of it in 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 Europe because we have, we tend to have a history of probably arguably more left wing governments that that are happy to pump some money in and give people sort of a baseline to work with is is that money has it ever been available in in is there an, is there another industry where subsidies have worked and has been shown to work in uh, maybe in, in agriculture or something else. That you know, well, that's what's so funny. It's like no one's ever, as far as I can tell, no one's ever grown food without a subsidy, right? <laughs> like, like there is no agricultural sector without a subsidy. We just call it, you know, it's a, um, uh, uh, you know, it's in the farm bill, um, but it's mainly going to the largest producers 
um, uh, in the country, in the world, as opposed to communities and networks of farms and stuff like that, because it's a political subsidy, right? You yeah, know, yeah. So, um, uh, so I, um, subsidies there, we don't, I mean, there was a COVID subsidy where we gave everybody loans, right? <laughs> Suppose loans right. that were forgivable loans, right? Because we can't use the word subsidy in the U.S. It's a, um, I mean, what we've done is created the Kelp Climate Fund, which pays farmers a dollar a foot to plant kelp. And that's just a straight subsidy that I hope will disappear at some point when the market matures and does does what it should do well. Like markets kind of, um, uh, 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 they're not functioning as we need them to be. So to get over that trench of death where we have successful farmers and enough supply, there needs to be a subsidy there. The way the Kelp Climate Fund's works is um, farmers get um, uh, paid for planting seed. And then in return, they provide some data, right? And they enter it into the MyKelp app, right? That we developed. And that allows one, the farmers to uh, have the resources to scale and plan, but it also gives us incredible data sets to measure you know, environmental benefits to, 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 to see, to predict like yields and quality and things like that. And so the subsidies can be used to unlock data. So for good planning and for opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, that's how, that's how we see it. Again, it's kind of like non-ideological, right? It's just like, what's the most useful to get more kelp in the water and to get more data in return. And where's the money from for that data? Therefore, for the fund, is that coming from subsidy? Some, some, some have you just got made it yourself because you're such an incredibly successful man that you're just pumping it in gratis? Or no, where's I'm, I'm, I'm extremely <laughs> successful uh, 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 in any way that we we you know Greenwave is a nonprofit, so we've got um, incredible network of funders that um, uh, want to address climate change. So they want more kelp in the water because it does good things for the planet and want to make sure that farmers make a living. And so it's just that section of of, of philanthropic money that um, is very results driven and they get this, they get the numbers and things like that. So it's all philanthropic. What's very interesting is the US, USDA just has been um, issuing uh, uh, a, um, a large climate commodities uh, program, which is exactly designed to this, to like subsidize crops on land um, that have positive climate impact. And so, we, you know, we'd really love to see that to shift to seaweed as well. Fab. Well, that's awesome. Uh, the climate fund just seems like an amazing model that we could take different places, just use localized philanthropy. Um, and I know there's that money out there that's uh, that's ready to to give the people, as you say, get them over that hump. Um, let's talk uh, cooperation. What's the? I think this is you know every, everybody I speak to is uh, well, just frankly, just really lovely. Everybody I speak to in the in the kelp world and in, in the seaweed macroalgae world are really lovely. Everybody wants to help one another going on it. But do we need to formalize that co- cooperation a little bit more, both at the macro level and the micro, uh, and right down to the you know the local? Yeah, I mean, so this is what's fun, sort of having a bit of a blank slate that we all of us have, being able to build something from the bottom up, um, in that we can kind of build it right. And one of the core pieces is creating a hive mind of collaboration. And, you know, like the soy or maize had 10,000 years to like for people to share lessons and to become productive. Yeah. We got 
nine to 10 years before the planet ends, right? So we need to like learn very, very, very fast. Um, and so GreenWave's part of that is, you know, we, we created the the um, uh, uh, the Regenerative Ocean Farming Hub, which has curriculum, uh, but also has a community on there. We have like 3,000 people on there and like thousands of posts and answers and subjects. We've got farmer mentors that are paid to answer questions. And what, what that's about is that it's, like I said, it's very hard to grow food underwater, right? You can't control your soil. There's just incredible volatility. Um, uh, and the only way to compete with that uh, or compensate it is is really fast learning, like the hive mind, the networked approach where like you're just like, farmers are in contact all over the country and off the, all over the world trying things and sharing. And what's amazing is... Um, I think the Ocean Farming Hub has really tapped into that blue collar innovation of folks out in the water and then really wanting to share and learn from each other. Um, we've done a bunch of offline events of bringing farmers together, and it is just amazing to hear them sort of trade um, and swap strategies around anchors, for example. You know, that's a hot topic to a farmer yeah. is anchoring, you know, it's like that. But that's exactly the sort of granular, granular collaboration we need. I think in other industries, people talk a lot about collaboration. But it's actually competitive down in the trenches. And GreenWave was formed as a nonprofit to create a non-competitive space. And then at some point, let's hope we're all competing. But that means there's like a lot of success. But the yeah, early stage exactly. of an uh, industry really needs um, uh, a certain uh, uh, network learning and knowledge. And what what does that? Let's take that a, a little bit further. So we've got this wonderful hive mind that's run by you guys, and probably in other places as well. There's sort of localized hive minds going on. What do we do? Can we get in? Because I think one of the one of the issues is is is, is going to be about quality of the product, and it's going to get that. And we need to come up with sort of a, a you know a set policy that says that this is good kelp this is bad kelp this is good asparagopsis this is bad you know we, and we need to get that is there have you noticed that i mean i know there's a lot of great people having great chats but i don't know if there's this kind of there's not a un of seaweed or the but probably there's probably a better or world seaweed fund or something like that or, or do you hear of, of those sort of things uh those kind of organizations coming into fruition i mean um i think there's been some really large uh, like in europe and I, I forget the names, but they, in Europe, there's some uh, sort of... Uh, you mean for Europe? Yes. Yeah. Like almost like trade organizations that are... Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, uh, um, uh, ...forming. And I think that's it's. Uh, I think that's really good. I mean, it's sort of both ends. Like we're seeing trade organizations emerge. And then we're also seeing the early stages of farmer co-ops emerging. And both of those are actually can develop standards, right? I was in a shellfishing co-op for 15 years... And we really set standards internally because if one farmer sold bad shellfish, it really impacted all of us, right? Yeah. So there was a real peer pressure to create a high quality product. And the, the co-ops were an efficient way to do that. And then trade associations are a really great way to do it sort of further down the supply chain. So I, I do think we're um, uh, uh, we're headed there. I, what's interesting is like, we got to move fast, but we also need to be patient. Like we're seeing everything come together, right? Piece by piece. It'd be great if it was now, but like, you know, just immediate, but it's, it'll take a little time. And uh, having been in the industry quite a while, it's just amazing how many pieces have developed. And we're like halfway there, I, fi I figure. Do you think that the, um, the policies that are set, uh, or should I say the 
the um, different geographies need to have different policies or that th there's going to have to be the, a, a higher level and then there's going to have to be the localized uh, and it's going to I'd imagine there's got to be just a number of tiers here but what I want to know is you know can, can that what, what other things can that incorporate other than quality what other things that we do we need to all kind of just sign up to agree to doing like not mucking up the ocean along the way not you know not over d doing things you know and not yeah you know, what are, what is it you would want from that those, those policies well, the kind of I mean, I feel like there's a, I feel like there's a lot we could um, do with zoning in itself, right? So, I mean, one of the things this industry in the states it's kind of been crazy, especially here in New England, in that we it grew organically. Like there were some farmers and then some hatcheries and some great processors, and then some policy came in. I mean, in Connecticut, we wrote the the uh, it was called the uh, uh, seaweed jobs bill, and I was the only job. Right. And that came in a few years after I'd been um, operating. So it was all this sort of organic growth. And what we really need to look like is wind farm policy, right, where you have infrastructure and training programs and like pre pre zoned areas and um, both government support and investment. And and um, uh, where I'd hope we'd be quite quickly is somewhere like a blue carbon zone. I think California is very promising in this, where you have, you know, say 2000 acres and you're, you're farming a section of it. And those farmers are also doing reforestation to revive the, the kelp and shellfish um, areas. You've got artisanal fisheries and ecotourism. And that's like the marine protected zone for the climate era, right? Yeah, uh, get it. Uh, and through there, you can have, then there are all these places where you can have a uh, dictate lease size and dictate quality and hatcheries and local sourcing of seed and all these different things within this zone. We have something called land trusts here in the U.S., um, which function this way, and they're all often held by intermediaries. So I can see a situation where like a big environmental organization holds the 2000 acres and it's all pre-permitted and there are certain uh, um, uh, sort of requirements and conditions on all these. But I, I think we need to think that way. Like we, it's time to now start planning and building all these different principles and needs into the planning process. But you and I both know um, as uh, well in, in your dealings, but also because I have worked for the government, you know, there's a lot of chat and sometimes it just takes a really long time to pass any kind of to get the policy squared away. Do you feel like the, the US are the furthest ahead or is there somewhere else that, that, that are getting to that place where they've got policy about marine protected zones that are ready for the, the future? No, I mean, one of the challenges is I think every area around um that like we've seen it um it has pieces but not the other pieces and the trouble with this you need to move everything on the chessboard at the same time right so some places policy will be ahead um but there won't be sort of working waterfront land infrastructure i mean you know uh dockside yeah, infrastructure yeah. or things like um uh, uh uh that and so it's really hard to bring all these things um uh uh these things together i think um and maybe it will really look like organic growth. I think what, so I, th I think the next stage that's going to happen is there are going to be a couple areas that really figure it out, right? Like really break out in terms of producing a couple of million pounds of kelp and really, you know, 
ending the dependence on wild seed collection and have great stabilization and market pull. And then quickly, there'll be replication of those as long as they're sharing. So I, I, uh, I'm expecting in the next like three, four years, there'll be some um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, really concrete examples of scaled climate uh, solutions in, in, the, in the seaweed space. Well, I am certainly hope so too, but I, I couldn't help but think as soon as you said that, well, surely that's where it's that's where we look to the to the east, because they've been farming seaweed commercially for a really long time. They've got some things going. What are they not doing out there that we can that that, that, that we need them to do? Because they've got the mass, right? Because yeah. they've got a market for the mass in the in the food market. I mean, it's so fascinating, right? This history of East meets West. And this this good. I talk about this in the book where where there was this moment in the 50s where um, uh, Asia, would, during the modernization of the seaweed industry, Asia decided to go into food and the U.S. decided to go into like industrial production for biofuels, for fertilizer, things like that. And um, uh, uh, so the Asian route really worked way better. The issue was labor costs were so low that it is like ridiculously inefficient. So, you know, to do nori, you got to plant an, a, like a million bamboo poles in Japan. Yeah. I visited these farms, right? And so it's, it's and I I don't know if the status right, but I heard they were like, there was a deficiency of like 30,000 workers they needed to attract in the industry because no young people, young people just didn't want to plant poles every day, right? right? And so what I was shocked when I went to South Korea and Japan was actually how, um, uh, 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 almost like early stage. They were using the same kind of boats they were using 40 years ago. Um, yeah. uh, they have made real advances, I think, in processing like that infrastructure of, of quality and separating kelps and things like that and drawing technology and in hatcheries. But the other thing that it is, I mean, a real issue globally, but in Asia as well, is that the whole industry is dependent on wild seed. Like we're not farming yet. I think about yeah. this. Nice. Say you're a maize farmer, and every year you got to go go out and collect your maize seed in the sure. wild to then go plant on your field. This is what we all over the globe. We go out <laughs> as farmers and hatchery folks and get sorus tissue, bring it back, and then grow it. Like that is not farming. It's not. We need to domesticate seed. And actually, what's very exciting, we've partnered with some folks um, uh, that have been, uh, I think, really, really begun to answer this. Uh, question on our farm we have um uh uh we we have some domesticated seed which is all native and non-gmo and sort of all those sort of things and the growth rates are just stunning but it's um uh so i was expecting asia to be way way ahead because i was hoping just to learn and steal right wouldn't that be great yeah. um, right. Uh, but there was less than i'd uh i'd hoped that's fascinating i had never considered that at all so so let's just recap. So we've, we we the, the pillars of the industry that we've discussed are investment, like how to, the, the right kind of investment, and and in in that the subsidies that's probably going to be needed as well. We've talked about the cooperation that needs to take place at different levels. We talked about the different policy. You mentioned it there that that, that some of the tech is there in the in in the east at the moment, certainly in the um, in the processing. Um, I wonder what other bits of tech that we need to start thinking about. I'm thinking AI blockchain that sort of stuff any mechanical engineering stuff where where do you think there's a there's, there's some niches there that need to really be exploited before we can we can we can go to warp factor 4 absolutely i mean there's you know like no one's invented an affordable tractor of the sea right please somebody invent them and then i will buy it 
right? You know, but um, uh, 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 you know, the John Deere um, uh, is desperately ne- needed. But he, it's very interesting to you know, I'm not a tech guy, but I've used a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, tech companies have embedded their stuff on my farm over the years, and. Um, it's all developed for other industries, and then they try to push it into seaweed, right? You know, so it's dependent for for salmon farms or for tracking, you know, um, uh, uh, all sorts of stuff for NOAA, things like that. And they've really not been very useful because they're not collecting the data we really need, and they're way too expensive, and they break all the time, and the biofouling's terrible, right? You know, like they, they these fundamental things. So we've taken a route where we decided that the best, most affordable sensor in the world is kelp. Because if you know how to read a piece of kelp, its coloration, its growth rates, what its stipe and hold fast look like, like you can, you can just learn so much about the water and what's going to happen throughout the season. Um, and farmers have those eyes. And what the idea is to just to, is to train AI to, to see what farmers see. So Greenwave, we're developing like a massive database of kelp images um, and working uh, to do that AI so that you can both analyze ecosystem services like environmental impact, but also predict yields. And so um, we're sort of uh, we're pro technology, but also looking for what technology Mother Nature has developed. Right. And and yeah. I think we've got this sweet spot that's really been uh, 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 really has some legs. That's fascinating. And who who are you working with for, for, for that? Or can you not say? Because I think I think that that machine learning AI stuff is 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 just growing massive. I don't know if you saw the the chatbot, the late chat GPT that just came out. Like there's some, it's it's extraordinary. And that's that's just that's today. And like I can't, I, it to me it seems like somebody could utilize that level of tech now to start doing all of that so what's the the end result is we are able to monitor farms on massive scales on the quality of the water column the, the quality of the benthic layer quality of the of the of the product so yeah. what that's great but you, again we still got the stumbling blocks of we need to harvest that and we need to be able to harvest it well over that yeah. you know and quickly um but but to put to put that aside, I want I do want to deal with with processing because it's obviously one of the bigger conundrums, right? And uh, I want your perspective on: is there a simple way? There's I know you used to use tobacco farms um, or tobacco houses and stuff like that. Is there something else we're we're looking at? Is there, is there somewhere else in the world? I can't help but feel like if we can do this, this is again a warp factor change. Exactly, and I mean it, unpack being able to do it like. You can do a lot of stuff in a very expensive way, but can you do it to make the unit economics work, right? right. <laughs> so exactly, yeah. Someone can sell a product, the energy costs are low, the farmer can make a living. And so um, a lot of people have developed incredible, what I think of like bench scale technologies on processing, but you look at the the unit economics and like, you know, the the additive they're adding for stabilization is more expensive than the kelp. So they need to drink. So right. that doesn't work yet, right? You know what I mean? Like that's not what I define. They'll get there, but it's going to take some some time. Um, our view at Greenwave, and we have sort of four categories of program, right? One is farmer training and support. 
The other one is the Kelp Climate Fund, which is the subsidies. We do market development. And then we do farmer-owned infrastructure. And we're just trying to, like we developed a, um, a, a, a nursery that can produce 12 miles of seed in a small shipping container, low energy costs, and can be run by one person part-time, right? So that was like, that could be Amazing. farmer and forward. We need to do the same thing with processing. But processing, like the kelp comes out of the water, you need two stages. You need to stabilize it. So it can just sit there and then you do the value added, you blow the kelp apart and extract different things that you want out of it. Yeah. Right. You know, the collagens, the carbohydrates. Like you need a refinery. Exactly. But the refinery, like you need the dockside stabilization, which should just be a shipping container where you're crunching it up and you're doing, some people do fermentation, but you, you need to do a little more than that. Right. And, yeah. and create a cocktail so that the kelp is like um, uh, 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 the integrity is held yeah, in there. It's, it's, you haven't degraded it. Anyway. Exactly. And so very often you'll hear in the industry like, yeah, we need biorefineries, but you unpack that and there's primary and there's secondary. And the primary has to be close to the farms, has to be modular. It's only open a couple, you know, a month, a year. Right. Yeah. Um, and then this this second stage where we're where the commodity is shipped out. So again, there's like this opportunity just to begin moving beyond the rhetoric and like and really get like unpack these things of what's actually needed and where it can be produced. And this dockside processing is just absolutely um, uh, vital to move uh, the industry forward. I mean, it's I cannot be selling kelp. I need to sell a stabilized yep. kelp thing that I should get more money for. Right. Yeah, yeah, get it. Yeah, you've got it. Um, uh, is it a chemical problem or is it a mechanical problem or is it is is it both in your in your mind? Do you think that the the result that if we put the biggest the biggest brains of chemistry on it, they would solve it, or is it a mechanical? Um, you know, uh, it's it, it's chemical. Um, uh, it's like you can do it chemically, but it's got to be cheap. So it's to drive down the cost of um uh, uh uh doing the chemical stabilization because i mean you can do it really cheap you can just throw molasses in basically but the that the value of the things that then you can extract are much lower but if you throw in amazing chemicals that are really expensive that kelp is really stabilized and then you could do that um uh, use other technologies to extract really really valuable things from the kelp i mean i've moved over the Years, the stupidest thing I ever did. Well, I've done a lot of stupid things, but one of them is say kelp is the new kale. It's just not right. <laughs> and I it was just because those stupid shirts were out. You know what I mean? The kale yeah, shirts and cross that out, real kelp. It's because it's not. It's not the kelp. It's what's in the kelp, right? There are all these amazing things in kelp that the world needs, that land-based agriculture needs, that the bioplastics um, industry needs, and we need to get in, blow that kelp apart, and extract those things. Like you know, I'm just not interested in selling kelp in Brooklyn, like I was the first, you know, decade here. Like if I, if I'm selling my kelp in Brooklyn and high-end restaurants, that means I'm, you know, still failing. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, unfortunately, it's just not the, the economics aren't there really for, for that level. Um, do you, so I, I'd like to, as we've got to wrap up, which is terribly sad, but um, I always ask, I guess, if they're hiring or not, and I don't want to ask that to you. I want, I want to ask you, uh, from your perspective there's a lot of people listening to this podcast and um and who follow green wave and that who are just trying to find their route in and and they might not come from the sea they might not come from agriculture at all um what's your advice where, where would you apply yourself if you were getting into this industry now and you wanted to make a serious you know actually wanted to make a difference not just plod along actually be part of something and making growing the industry 
Yeah. Um, first of all, we are going to be doing rounds of hire this year. And one of the biggest challenges we have is it's not like raising money so much. It's finding um, like the right people that um, have the right skill set um, to really move this forward. We need a bench, right? The whole industry needs a bench to pull from. Um, and and uh, because it takes us a year or two to train people. And that's like a lot of lost time, right? So, um, um, but uh, I mean, first of all, if I was like a young person, generally the climate solution space is a really exciting, fascinating space. And I'd think about my sort of career trajectory generally about like, how do I, how do I sit in climate solutions? I think in um, uh, kelp, I mean, I don't want to be like, it really, it really, when I think about kelp, it really is all hands on deck. Like we need incredible policy. So, you know, the urban ocean lab is doing incredible work on trying to shape policy around the country that is kelp and farmer, uh, you know, ocean farmer forward. Um, The, the entrepreneurs that are doing value-added products sort of all along the supply chain and in different industries, it's just like so key. So if you're a chemist, like, you know, get into uh, get get into get into kelp. Um uh we need folks from like, you know, really figuring out this the biostimulant and the fertilizer space with land-based farmers, right? So I, I think there are a lot of opportunities um for folks to uh move in. Um uh yeah, that's the but that's they, the, they sound with if you don't mind me saying that they sound quite tech techie i mean these are people who you are that, that's what this industry does need it needs the tech expertise but what if you're just a layman like me who's got who's not particularly bright and <laughs> but just wants to throw themselves at, at it i'm not saying that my listeners my listeners are incredibly clever but i just think yeah. they might not necessarily their their expertise might be somewhere else and they just actually want to get their hands dirty I think if you're um, what what I view as the community of passion, so you want to get into this, you don't know how you're a regular person like me. Um, I think one is join the the Green Wave Regenerative Ocean Farming community and just listen, watch, and look for opportunities. Meet folks. Think of it as like a networking place, and it's a mix of farmers and hatchery folks and policy people, whole mix. So join that community, and you know it just keeps building. And then 
One thing is go DIY, right? If you want to get your hands dirty, we've got kids, uh, elementary school kids growing spools of of sporophytes, of kelp sporophytes in their classrooms. Like go out and put a couple kelp lines out on a dock um, uh, and see how it grows. And like, it's a great way to see what your water quality is like and the coloration and the nutrients. So I think DIY play around um, and uh, see if you develop a, a blue thumb and it's something you're interested in. Well, that's that's a very good point. You need to work out if you're going to get a blue thumb. You might, you might be, very, as you say, just very passionate and super pumped by it. But you might find that it's just it's just a grizz, and it's a really hard thing to, to to do. And you your expertise might be better placed somewhere somewhere else. But I think actually getting and this is something I'm desperate to do as soon as possible is go and get my hands wet, um, so that I really know what I'm talking about because uh, it's kind of ridiculous that I, that I have a podcast about it and I haven't actually put my hands on any kelp kelp in the water. And I know that I, it will probably change my perspective quite quite enormously. I, I mean, I will say that is it is really important. Like it's a responsibility to to go out and see the farms and think about them and have some sort of uh, develop that respect for the ocean. So, for example, like you don't want to over design a farm. You want to be a willow, not an oak. Right. So when the storms come in, you bend and then pop back up. And that's a design question. That's why you just want, you know, uh, anchors, ropes, and buoys, and something that's really flexible. But you don't really understand that. If you're at a desk and you never really spent some time out there, you design, you start drawing these really complex, expensive systems. So go out, get your uh, feet wet, really um, get versed in the in the sort of the dialects out there and 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 the parameters, and then come back and, you know, all hands on deck. And the first thing that everybody should do, if they haven't done it already, is read Eat Like a Fish. Am I right? Uh, it puts you to sleep really, really well. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit of a salty tale at times, so don't share with your kids. But um... oh, It's absolutely fantastic. And um, as was your tech talk that, that inspired me in the first place, Ben, you know, I, I am I'm very humbled by the fact that you've come on this pod today and given us your, your experience and, and your thoughts on the future of the industry. I hope I can persuade you to come back on in a couple of years when we are cooking with gas and we are at Warp Pack to Four. But all it remains to say, thank you, Bren, for inspiring me into this world and for inspiring so many other people. Please keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I look forward to watching how you develop and a green wave develops with you. Absolutely. I mean, what's wonderful now is I'm pretty irrelevant, right? And that that's exciting, right? It's my yeah. time to fade to blue and let others take over. And it's I'm just psyched to sit back and watch. Well, thank you so much for your time, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the pod. I look forward to speaking to you again. Okay. Talk soon. Take care.